Thank you. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It is February 6th, uh, 2019. Uh, welcome to February, the shortest month, and turning the corner on winter. We have um, next week uh, a triumvirate of doctors Stephanie White, Roshini Pinto Powell, and Julie Kim presenting, and expect a, a pre uh, pre-Grand Rounds email to your inboxes to complete a survey in advance about um, what do you do about bias for when patients express bias towards their prov uh, providers in the exam room. I don't see Deb uh, Poland. Oh, Julie, yes. Is that, that's next week, right? Not next week, but I was going to make it complete because we're actually trying to collect data about what the, the, uh, what the data is here in our institution about patient bias. So please... Um, Fill that survey out when you did that. Thanks. Good. I'm glad you're you're here. Uh, I don't see Deb pulling. We also received word that um, um, De Cornelia Gonsalves, a nurse practitioner in the Child Advocacy and Protection Program in Manchester, is going to be honored by the CACs, the Child Advocacy Centers, in April as a champion for mm -hmm. child's uh, children. So um, more good news this week. So uh, today's Grand Rounds, the 1st of February, is delivered by uh, Melissa Fussell, who is a um, member of our faculty, assistant professor of pediatric critical care medicine here at the Chad and the Geisel School of Medicine, a native of Lowell, Massachusetts, actually. Um, she was drawn south to the University of Georgia, where she majored in biology and was a, a Division I track and field um, athlete, stayed in the south for her medical degree and Master's of Business Administration at the Medical University of South Carolina in the Citadel in South Carolina. Came back home uh, to Boston for residency at Boston Children's Hospital and fellowship then down Baltimore at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Um, so two pretty um, iconic children's hospitals before joining us in 2016. Her, her career thus far has been marked by expertise in uh, course critical care, but also simulation training uh, and international global health, which all of which are going to be touched on here today. So, Melissa, welcome. Turn on your mic. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about my academic passion, simulation. Um, we'll spend most of today talking about the whys and the hows of bringing this simulation boot camp to Chad and the training we did last year. And then at the end, we'll tell you a little bit about how we brought that out into the community, both the local community and the global community. So picture this. It's Friday afternoon. You haven't seen your kids all week. You're ready to go home, and it's been a quiet day in the PICU. Yep. It may have even said quiet day in the PICU. You know where this is headed. <laughs> Dr. Bauer finished up his last case. The case is rolling in. There was a lot of bleeding. We're worried about a subdural. Has to go to the CT scanner stat. We're mobilizing all the nurses. Takes a lot to get a kid down to the CT scanner. And I get a call from anesthesia. They're worried that this child aspirated on induction and they can't extubate and they're starting to bag with really high pressures. So we're getting ready for this sick kid to come in. We're sending this other kid to the CT scanner. The kid rolls in and they're bagging at such high pressures we're gonna have to start pressers soon. We need to get the epi into the room. Thank God Marcy was there. She's already calling Madonna. Derek has telepathy in the PICU, so he's already on his way in. We've got these two kids, and we're going to need a lot of hands on deck. The child's really sick, rolling in the door, and then 
Dr. Ralston pops her head in and says there's a teenager who's septic, getting her second bolus, needs her third push-pull bolus, and she's going to roll into room 10, and I know that Dart's on their way with a status epilepticus. Now I'm calling Matt and Michelle and Sholene. The nurses are mobilizing other nurses from all over the hospital. We're in the room coding the aspirating patient, pushing the code button. The emergency department is there. We worked tirelessly into the night, and I can say that all of the outcomes were very good that day, thanks to the impressive response from all of the nurses and doctors and resources that were mobilized throughout the whole hospital. Some of you may have even <laughs> attended the princess party that we had a month later for one of the patients that um, had a great outcome from that day. But looking back, if that had happened at any other time of the day, that happened when Marcy wasn't there or Matt couldn't come in or we couldn't mobilize these resources from adult ICU from the ED, we may have had very different outcomes. We actually were in a time of high turnover with nursing. We had a lot of owls and we had a lot of near misses and some safety events that were becoming very concerning. And so the Quality and Safety Committee took a look and did a risk assessment to see what are the themes that keep reoccurring that we need to address to make sure that we can deliver this high quality of care no matter what day, no matter what time. And so see, these are some of the themes that came up in the risk assessment. And so from a systems-wide look, we had things to address in culture. On an individual level, we worried about communication. And, and even at the human error level, we're worried about critical thinking and building skills. And so the powers that be needed to come up with an action plan and a task force to answer some of these risks. And so they came up with themes that we needed to address. How do we deliver this high quality care all of the time without risking our patients? And so these were some of the key topics that we were asked to address from the risk assessment. And so we needed to address this high turnover and this low morale. It was creating a, a culture that was not conducive to good care. We had to address the lack of competencies of a lot of the providers in inpatient pediatric medicine. We had to address the lack of critical thinking and the problems we were having with communication. That's a lot of things to address, and we needed to come up with an action plan, and we had to come up with it quick. And so are we alone with these problems? Are they problems that exist in other PICUs? And what does the evidence and expert opinions and medical knowledge tell us about what we need to be doing about these problems? And so we went to the journals, and we weren't alone. Limitations to proving pediatric critical care are everywhere, and a lot start with that human resource scarcity and that high turnover. It's very hard to build a culture of good quality improvement and good communication when you have the high turnover and you can hardly meet ends meet in the PICU, <laughs> nevertheless going to <coughs> training sessions. The professional recommendations on what to do for these problems, a lot centered around training multiple professions at the same time. And so the training that we'd been exposed to are nurses going to skills days, physicians going to conferences, and learning within their own profession how to become better. 
But you can imagine on that day, when we're all standing around the bedside and running around the PICU, we're not doing that in a vacuum. It's not a bunch of physicians in one room and a bunch of nurses in another room. Everyone's at the bedside. The leader's standing there thinking through their head, what am I missing? What, what can I do differently? The nurse is at the bedside. She's like, I've just gotten six things I need to do. I don't know what to do first. The respiratory therapists are handing off because one's going to get the ventilator. He doesn't even know who the leader is. All of these people are existing in a vacuum and they're all thinking in their head. No one has telepathy. No one knows what the other person is thinking. And we haven't been trained to talk out loud. That leader should be saying those things out loud. This is what I'm thinking. I don't know why this is happening. These are the things we've done so far. Can anybody help me? The respiratory therapist should be saying, I'm confused. Who's the leader? But we don't practice these things. And so how do we know how to do them when we get into these very high stressful situations? And so a lot of the recommendations for this multidisciplinary professional training comes down to providing training through simulation. So maybe this was our answer. Maybe we could come up with solutions to the risk assessment by providing simulation. But how? How do we provide the best simulation? And so we went and looked at what other institutions were doing with simulation. And the nurse education and practice had a lot of information about high fidelity simulation and how they've been having a lot of successes in improving the confidence of bedside nurses through simulation. There was this topic of deliberate practice. So simulation-based medical education, far superior to traditional medical education in graduate medical education journals on doing this deliberate practice medical education. So I want you to keep that deliberate practice topic in your head. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And then there's this idea of medical education boot camps. So I didn't think of the boot camp name myself. It's been out there for a while. But it's this idea of having multiple patients, multiple disciplines, multiple lectures all put together in a very intensive day of training. And then here we are again with this rapid cycle deliberate practice this type of learning in medical education that's associated with improving resuscitation skills. And there's been more and more evidence on how well this works. So let's talk about rapid cycle deliberate practice. It's kind of a big term. Tom Brady, how'd you get in here? <laughs> he might be the goat, but he's going to help me tease out this rapid cycle deliberate practice idea. So it's the fourth quarter. We definitely need a touchdown. What's he going to do? Is he going to pass it off to Michelle? Is he going to lob it down to, to Gronk or Edelman? We need Tony Romo. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> but we do know that this man has been throwing these passes or handing it off hundreds, no, thousands of times. Over and over and over. Sony Michelle was six years old when he won against the Rams in 2002. He's had a lot of different teams over a lot of different years. And it doesn't matter if it's the Super Bowl, if it's snowing, if it's freezing, if it's hot. He's done this over and over, and he's done this a million times. And that's why he's an expert in what he does. Is there anybody out there that plays football? No one plays football anymore. <laughs> How about team sports? Anybody play team sports? No soccer players? What do you play? Hockey. Hockey. And so you've probably been to a lot of practices practicing the same shot over and over. Yes? Okay. How about musicians? 
You know, I'm playing a musical instrument. What do you play? Guitar. And so playing the same song over and over and over until you master it, right? I play piano. I can remember sitting at the bench, my poor parents, just playing the same song over and over and getting to that tough spot and getting so frustrated and throwing the music across the room, but then getting back to playing that same song again. And that's what experts do. Before getting on stage, Billy Joel has played that song a million times. Before showing up for the Super Bowl, Brady has thrown that pass a million times, and they're experts in what they do. So why do we, who save children's lives, expected to go in with no practice? And the Professor K. Anders Erickson asked that same question. So he's the goat of research in expert performance. Maybe that's a little dorky thing to say. <laughs> so we brought up this idea. I mean, we all are aware of it. Our professional expertise is judged by how long we've been working at the hospital, by our reputation as a doctor, or by how other people perceive our mastery at what we do in medicine. But the research demonstrates that there's a very weak relationship between that perception or how long we've been here and how well we actually do our job. This is an argument that's been around since Aristotle. That issue of how do we certify who's an expert, the issues surrounding whether or not it's the mastery of theory or the mastery of actually performance and skill. And he brought this idea that as practitioners in medicine, we needed to be afforded that same luxury of being able to practice something over and over. That mastery and skill comes with the ability to take a task, to complete that task, to have a coach or a mentor give you feedback on that task, allow you to correct the problem and do it again. And if you can do it again and again, it becomes muscle memory, like shooting a hockey puck or playing that song. And so if you can get that muscle memory and attain those skills by doing practice over and over, when you're put into the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl, you actually have the muscle memory to do those tasks you've been doing over and over, and you can cognitively unload yourself and allow yourself to actually identify the things that are different about the situation and become an expert in medicine. And so he's one of the researchers that showed us that simulation is the future of medicine. Simulation is our ability to sit there and practice, to do things over and over. So when we have that quiet day on Friday, that's not the first time we've seen it when we have these very sick patients. The first time we've seen it is in the simulation lab. And so this was our answer to the risk assessment. This is where we needed to take our training and to address our problems. And so that's what we did. We put together a simulation-based education training boot camp. And so our overall aims were to address some of these issues in the risk assessment. We needed to improve communication. We wanted to increase experience with some of these new nurses, residents, in high-risk critical pediatric cases. And we wanted to be able to do this boot camp over and over and so we could identify new participant learning needs and some of the institutional safety threats that maybe we didn't even know existed yet. 
And so recruitment. So for our pilot for boot camp, we had 53 learners. So there were 33 nurses, 12 physicians, six respiratory therapists, and two of the paramedics from DART. We had over a dozen volunteer parents that came in and were parents to these, these sick children. And each of the teams had their coach. There was phys physician's assistants, attendings, clinical nurse educators, our charge nurses were all put on a team to coach our learning teams that went through. And we had the entire simulation staff on hand and helping every second. And we planned to have the entire simulation center for the entire day. And part two was planning to take this out of the simulation center and actually bring it into our new Five East inpatient unit before we moved. Sick kids don't just happen in the PICU, they also can code all over the hospital. And so we wanted to recreate that as well. And so we had some plastic patients also crumping in the hallways, some of you may have seen. And we used all of the things that we used in the PICU. We used our own code cards, our own airway boxes. We had a pharmacist on hand to help with all of the medicines that are required in these situations. We had the Zoll and the defibrillator ready. And so we needed to come up with a curriculum that was going to match our needs. And so we put, pulled together an expert panel, nurses, respiratory therapists, techs, pharmacists, attendings. We took a look at some of the high complexity cases that we were seeing in the risk assessment that we were seeing in the PICU. Um, and we also did a survey on thoughts and behaviors around multidisciplinary communication. We also surveyed all of our participants and asked them what were their priorities for learning. <laughs> so we gave them a list of all of the topics that we thought may be important to learn for pediatric acute care, and they gave each topic a score from one to four. Four being, I need to learn this now. One being, we can wait and do this some other day. And we developed a curriculum using all of this information and those prioritized learning needs that had mean aggregate scores greater than 3.5. And so what did we find out? So we found out in our Ted and Ben PICU, we see about a quarter of respiratory patients. So for the year prior to boot camp, um, most respiratory cases were infectious with asthma coming in second. We saw a lot of neurosurgical cases with a pretty even mix of traumatic um, neurosurgical cases and non-traumatic. And then this, these scores over to the left are what our learners told us they wanted to learn. And so the number one most points for topics for priorities in learning were resuscitation and shock, respiratory failure, trauma, and traumatic brain injury um, were also very important to learn. And so we took this expert panel, this information on what types of cases we should pull together and we created a day for simulation boot camp. So this is our schedule for day one. This is a snapshot. We took our participants and we divided them into two teams per day, and part one was done over two days. So four teams in two days over 12 hours of simulation. And we sat everyone down at the beginning and we gave them some tools to bring in to simulation day. So. We talked about the importance of that shared mental model of everyone talking out loud, saying what they're thinking instead of existing in their own heads. 
we talked about the importance of team communication. We introduced this idea of rapid cycle deliberate practice. And so we're not <coughs> going to throw you into a room of a sick kid and make you find all the answers and run the code by yourself. We're going to time you out. We're going to let the whole team decide what they could do better, what they may be missing. We're going to give you the answers, and then we're going to let you practice it again and do it right over and over until we get the outcomes and the skills that we're looking for. And what we may not have told them is, as you're getting down below the red line later in the day, the cases are going to get more stressful, more complex, but they're going to use the same skills that we already taught you in the beginning of the day. We're just going to ask you to do them in different environments throughout the day. And so I'm not going to give you all the answers. You can notice all the, the cases are coded by different names. Um, but you can see that we had two teams going in the simulation app at the same time. They were going from room four to room one, to the trauma bay, to the hallway, to the clinic, bringing the kids back down. And um, everyone was pretty much lying on the floor by the end of the day. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about what it's like to do rapid cycle deliver practice in medicine. And so we'll take the invasion of the body snatchers. So that case, I'll give you the answer, was shock. So these are the recommended guidelines for treating septic shock. But we're going to break this down even more. So the first part of treating shock is to recognize the decreased mental status, the decreased perfusion, start oxygen, to get IV access. That's all within zero minutes. That's really fast. And then five minutes, you do your initial resuscitation. So push boluses of 20 cc's per kilo. You want that first one in, in the first five minutes, but you also had to have done all those other things in the first five minutes. That's a lot of things to do in five minutes, and it's very stressful. And so we sent the teams in, and at first, nobody got 20 cc's per kilo and all those other things in the first five minutes. So we time out. We talk about what are the recommendations, what are the tools to get 20 cc's per kilo in in five minutes. That's really fast. And subsequently, 60 cc's per kilo in the first 15 minutes. We started it again. They had all the answers, but they did it. They were able to assign roles, to communicate, to get the 20 cc's per kilo in. They were actually able to progress the case to more and more complex situations. And so we used that rapid cycle deliberate practice. We had Matt and Derek in there timing them out, talking them how to communicate better, talking them how to get things done faster. We taught them how to reevaluate, something we often forget to do when things are very stressful. Did the first 20 cc's per kilo go in and the child's now developing heart failure? Okay, no. The liver's not down, there's no crackles. And by the end, they were getting the 20 cc's per kilo in three times within 12 minutes. They were already getting DOPA or epi to the bedside and hung. And the communication was excellent. Little did they know, later in the day, the child wasn't going to respond to 20 cc per kilo. They were going to see a poor response to therapy and heart failure, and they were going to have to bring a kid from clinic down using these same skills. But they were already becoming masters. And so did communication improve? 
So we use the ISVS validated scoring tool for multidisciplinary communication. And we saw that there were big improvements in the perception of communication. And so we were already starting to see improvement and results for some of these red flags we were seeing on the risk assessment. Um, Brianna loves to point out that it was the physicians, the MDs, that improved the most. Um, she can remember um, a resident turning to a nurse and saying, I need 20 cc per kilo, I need artline fluid, I need epi, and I need dopa, and that nurse, this is later in the day, going, time out. She called the time out and said, I can't do all those things at once. I need you to prioritize on what you need first. And it was just this huge breakthrough of something that never would have happened in a high-stress situation, but something that needed to happen. And so the communication scores, especially with our residents, were phenomenal. And then at the end of the day and over the weeks following the first pilot, we did structured feedback. We did quantitative and qualitative interviews and scoring of how we can make this experience better. And that's really where we came up with the second um, part of our pilot boot camp, moving it to our new Five East unit and testing it out before we get there. But we get a lot of positive feedback from nurses, physicians, DART, respiratory therapists on how much they learned and how much better they felt about resuscitating. And so we did our subsequent sessions on Five East. We were asked by the emergency department to do this for all of the staff um, in emergency medicine. And so we did an emergency medicine boot camp. And since then, we've been asked by trauma, we've been asked by neonatology, we've been asked by general surgery to include more and more disciplines and departments in this type of training because we've had so much success with it. Our volunteer parents love the experience so much, thought they had the opportunity to teach and to show the physicians and nurses how to better improve patient satisfaction and the care for parents in these situations. We went out into our community and told our community about how great their experience was, and we started getting requests to bring this type of training out into northern New England, out beyond just our institution. And so that's where we took it. So we partnered with a group called IMPACTS, so Improving Pediatric Acute Care Through Simulation. Uh, we were able to use our mobile simulation unit, which is an ambulance just for plastic simulation patients, um, and bring our simulation boot camp to some other institutions in northern New England. This IMPACTS group um, is out of Yale. They um, are the core that started the research and gathers the assessments from all of these emergency departments all over the country and um, helped uh, teach us how to bring boot camp training um, to community EDs. And so now we're on their official map as one of the nodes of IMPACTS care. And this concept is that Yale does the assessments and gathers the information. Us as a node are responsible for going to each of our community EDs and doing an initial meet the team, do that assessment again, find out what their learning needs are, what their patient mix is. We send that data back to Yale and then we 
put together a training day. And so we take these patients um, to their ED. We go into their ED and resuscitate these patients in their environment. We use their equipment, their resources, their guidelines and procedures. Each of the cases is five to 20 minutes. So right in the fashion of rapid cycle deliberate practice, we start with an easier case that lasts a few minutes. We do a 20 minute debrief. We teach skills in order to improve the care. Um, and then the cases progress throughout the day. We do a team in the morning, we have lunch, and then we have a second team that we do cases again in the afternoon. We've been doing this for a year now. We've, been, we've done training here at DH with the Yale team. We've been to New London and APD and have done the entire um, boot camp course. And um, our next sites that we've already been out um, to do the assessment at include Rutland, Mount Oscutney, Exeter, and Portsmouth. And so this is just our community. We haven't stopped there. We also deliver um, boot camp training to the global community. And so just like we partnered with Impacts, um, we partner with other groups in order to bring this type of training out into the world. And so Project ADAPT um, is a nonprofit that allows our physicians in resource poor countries around the world take ownership of improving acute pediatric care and medicine. And so these two pictures on the bottom were the first two sites with Project ADAPT in delivering multidisciplinary boot camp. On the left is Edo. He's one of the um, pediatric critical care providers in Tanzania. And on the right on the bottom, that's Ecuador, one of our patients in Ecuador. We've also brought some of our physicians back here to DH. And so Pendo in the top right um, is a critical care and emergency medicine pediatric provider in Tanzania. And she came to learn about how to deliver boot camp by attending our boot camp session here. And then I've also partnered with Actions for Mothers and Children with Dr. George Little, and we've brought this type of training to the transport medicine um, curriculum at, in Kosovo. And so in bringing this type of training to resource poor countries, we did our research and we identified some of the things that maybe we weren't thinking about while we were delivering care here. And so some of the similar things is they too have human resource limitations and high turnover. But they also have this idea of fatalism, this idea that there's little hope that a child can be helped. So when they come in critically ill and deteriorating, there is no triage. That child's gonna die, we can't help them. And so nothing is done. And so a lot of our initial training was to increase the ability to triage and respond on some very simple things like correcting glucose or giving fluids that often help some of these kids that weren't even being treated at first. And one of the other problems that we've run into in bringing this overseas is that a lot of training programs like to bring their awesome training program that they delivered in the US and deliver it the same way in these other countries. And that just doesn't work very well. And so we've used that time to do that assessment to identify the learning priorities and to adapt these training sessions to something that's more pertinent for something that's taking place in Ecuador or Kosovo or in Tanzania. And so this idea of mobilizing knowledge beyond national borders has become huge. And 
doing that by engaging the local leadership and the local reasoning of these physicians. And by doing that, you're creating much more effective multi-patient simulation boot camp. We use their resources, often adapting some of them to, to act in the same ways we use them here in high resource areas and try to bridge these education programs beyond DH, beyond Northern New England, beyond our nation um, in order to improve care. And so going into these sites, knowing that most of the child deaths are due to pneumonia and diarrhea. By the time they present to the emergency department or the PICU, they're fully septic or in hypovolemic shock. And instead of having 13 doctors per 1,000 patients, they have one. And how do we bring in those multiple disciplines, bring in those nurses, those techs, all hands on deck, and teach them how to do simple, low-resource interventions in order to save these children? And using mannequins and rapid cycle deliberate practice, we've done that over and over in multiple sites around the world. And so. Our purpose was to develop a global simulation curriculum, similar to the one here, but using local leaders, adapting the curriculums, but really addressing the same problems that we saw here with our risk assessment, addressing the communication breakdowns, the poor quality improvement processes, and the human resource scarcities. And then we created these programs using their guidelines. We did multi-professional boot camp, just in another country, and we prioritized their learning needs. And so we did the same thing. We assessed, we prioritized learning needs, and we made the curriculum. And so what did we find out? So in Tanzania, their capacity is six to 18 beds. No, they don't do bunk beds. We've often thought about that here. Um, but they put two or three patients in one bed. You can imagine the problems that occur when that happens. And um, they see a lot of sepsis and a lot of pneumonia. Their top five learning needs that were prioritized by their learners included resuscitation, but also included things like how to correct hypoglycemia, which was very surprising. In Ecuador, we um, have a capacity of six beds. It looks a lot more like a pick you would, you would see here. Um, they have a new cardiovascular program, so we were dealing with teaching a lot of um, resuscitation related to post-op cardiovascular care, but they too see a lot of respiratory failure and neurologic failure. This was our first mannequin in Tanzania, so you can still create high-fidelity teaching without a high-fidelity mannequin. We put a water bottle in that hole and used it to do compressions. It was very noisy. <laughs> and that is our simulation lab in Ecuador. And so um, they had a great grant from Lairdahl um, and brought in a lot of really great simulation equipment to do their boot camp. And this is invasion of the body snatchers in other countries. So this is the same case, sepsis and resuscitation. That's Tanzania on the right. And that's Ecuador, and it's surprisingly similar. They have a hard time getting 20 cc's per kilo in within the first five minutes. Um, but by the end of a 30-minute rapid cycle deliberate practice, um, both sets of teams were highly successful in getting the fluids in um, and really improving communication. And so not a whole lot different than 
invasion of the body snatchers in our simulation lab here. And so what happens when we put this all together? So these are the prioritized learning objectives um, from all three sites across the globe. And you can see that we really aren't that different. So all three sets of learners in three separate parts of the world all prioritize resuscitation and shock in their top five learning requirements. So we're providing the same medicine no matter our resources and where we are. And it really opened our eyes to how similar our courses in multidisciplinary simulation boot camp could be. But on top of those universal priorities, it were the individual priorities that really motivated our teams to improve, to improve things at their own hospital, and to look for the future for future training sessions and collaborations. And so we're continuing to collaborate with these institutions in other countries and in other parts of northern New England. Um, we're hoping to continue the exchange program and bring these doctors in, not only from New England, but also from other parts of the globe and continuing to improve our own simulation training here with expansion to include boot camps that have our emergency medicine providers and with our pediatric providers and our general pediatric surgery team and our trauma team, who seems a lot of adult patients in hopes that we can continue to improve the way we deliver care. And so Bill Gates stated that the lives of people in poor countries will improve faster in the next 15 years than any other time in history and their lives will improve more than anyone else's. It seems like a pretty great thing to be a part of. But what I like to ask myself is how do we, as providers of pediatric care, get better at that kid that comes into set clinic or that kid that's on a ventilator in the PICU? How can we better provide their care and get them back to getting onto that school bus on any ordinary day? Whether that school bus is here in Hanover up in North Country or over in Tanzania. And the best answer of how we get better is that we practice. Questions? So um, I can, the sort of within the boot camp measurements seem to be uh, pretty easy to make. How do you make so the overtime measurements of, for success of the boot camp. So um, part of the success in boot camp is how we can adapt over time to improve and meet the needs of our learners. And so one of the things we do is we do that Delphi study each time. So we see if we've got any developing learning needs and we're actually meeting the needs of our participants. Better measurements after the pilot improving success is measuring time to. So in that first case, what's the time to getting 20 cc's per kilo in? What's the time to getting the leads on or the O2 on? And we find that over time, we can have our learners have time to getting the leads on with, from five minutes to one minute. Time to getting three 20 cc per kilo boluses in from 20 minutes down to 15 minutes. And so with subsequent cycles, we can start to get our times to down based on guidelines. Do we have any way of measuring what is happening in our PICU? Like we have a septic patient, 
do we have a way of measuring time to from from identifying shop to time to first load bolus? I mean, I know that we do this. That's what we're we do. Do do we look at the numbers? I don't know. Do we? Do we have a way? Of, do we even know? I mean, unless I mean, in a code, we do. We have all the times. Right. But I don't know if we have. Of, it in the of going back and looking at when that first fluid bolus got in, or did we even identify sepsis? I'm, I'm sure there's ways, but I, I know that we're not doing it now. We do it in trauma, on the trauma bay, yeah. everything, but I don't know if we're sepsis. And you have, you have a person who's... You need yeah. the, you need you know the nurse, the quality, QI person for yeah. that. Yes. I think in surgery we do it, and we'll have an equipped for pediatrics soon. I think, I hope the medical side will go towards quality improvement and pushing it even more, and I think that will give you a lot of data to look at. Or I think about that person who's identified on the inpatient unit as looking sick. <clears throat> Pay time from that point to when they, Dr. Picky got their vote, flu bulls, got their advice, whatever, that that would be uh, right. the hardest but realist measure of... First five minutes, did they get the 20 cc's per kilo in? I would hope so, but maybe not. <laughs> I've done some work in Canada. Um, so in research, uh, resource for countries, how do you maintain having simulation be practiced? And so you cannot do it without having a champion there. And so that is why we have Project Adapt or Action for Mothers and Children. The leaders and the people running that momentum are people that are on the ground there all the time. And we act as a support system. Um, you'll find once you start getting that momentum that those leaders often have more and more support, but without their help and without them being there day to day, there's no way to sustain it. Melissa, once again, great. Um, off of that question or that uh, Bridget just said is, how often are you doing the boot camps here for practice? Is it per quarter, once a year, the pilot? Because having been educators throughout um, chat, that you're looking at right here, that's the initial thing is you get those pilots and you get that momentum going, but it's continuing that momentum, continuing that practice. And so have you been able to institute that practice here? So the dream is to be able to do this two times a year, two, two courses each time, like we did this pilot year. Um, we are looking for funding, writing grants, trying to find the resources to do it. But with all of the turnover that we've had moving to Five East, we've lost 90% of our leadership team that was did this initial pilot, um, and we're still looking for the funding. It is, especially in a, a big institution with a lot of adult medicine. They don't seem to like to give us a lot of money for pediatric stuff. <laughs> I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on a, a, a different approach to simulation. The process by which you arrived at how to implement this seems to me more important than what you actually did. And I wonder if there's a way of making a simulation that you could translate to the residents, to the faculty, to the systems in various places so that when you leave because of funding or lack of interest or whatever it is, they'll be able to, to, to actually do this by themselves for all the other kind of problems that they have to deal with. So I wonder if you could think of and, and what your thoughts would be about actually making a sim simulation that 
systems could practice so that they'll continue with quality improvement in other areas? You were not the first person to ask me that. My, my mentor in fellowship asked me over and over, how do I recreate the way I've done this in other countries? Um, and I, I would love to, to take on the task of putting together like a, a manual, so to speak, on how to not just jump in and deliver that simulation randomly on a Tuesday that never gets done again. It's really important to start with the fundamentals of what the system needs what the learners need and to put that assessment into play before you put together this rapid cycle deliberate practice. Um, and my hope is that we are able to find the funding, we are able to bring these resources back together and put together a recreatable system that we're not only using in pediatrics, but they're able to bring to the adult side, they're able to bring into trauma, and they're able to do without me. And so may take a couple years, but that is my goal. But they are in Tanzania doing that, right? That yes. In Ecuador. You've yes. a team that then goes and does those resuscitations. Right. And the champion to do it. And, and it's different in different parts of the world. The, the Ecuador system, a lot of the doctors who participated in that training, Moonlight and other PICUs around the country, and the day after the first boot camp, they were already in those other hospitals running simulation boot camps on the side and between patients, and it spread like wildfire. And the Ministry of Health funded the continued boot camp in all of the hospitals throughout the whole country over the next three years. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, <coughs> thankfully, some of these events are getting so rare that you know, we've graduated several countries of residents who've never seen an arrest outside of the picture. It's wonderful, but that's why we need the simulation so much. I think the thing that strikes me is we train in parallel, and then we expect to come to be a high-functioning team when we get on the unit, which is just craziness. So I think the, the key to your success is the interdisciplinary nature. And we just need desperately more opportunities to do that. Yes. True side-by-side teamwork uh, and it's real of recreation as we can do it. Um, I do have some funding sources that I want to talk to you about that I think would be great. Exactly what I want to hear. <laughs> uh, New Hampshire Foundation for Healthy Communities is very interested in supporting this kind of uh, work that would spread to other hospitals through New Hampshire. So I, I think this would be a, a very, very high likelihood of funding. All of these hospitals we've brought the simulation mobile unit to want to come and do simulation boot camp here with our teams. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get those invites out. I, the multidisciplinary aspect of it, it's just phenomenal to experience the change in culture. And so... You take a unit that is arguing and, and talking behind each other's backs and criticizing every other profession for everything that they didn't do well, and then you give them the time to time out. You give them the empowerment to say, hold on, that's not going to work for me. I need you as my leader to, to prioritize or to communicate differently. By the end of the day, you watch these teams 
do these resuscitations by a gold standard. And then what's even more near and dear to my heart is that I'll get the phone call from Maya in the ED and she'll be like, we had an SVT kid and the PICU team came down and it was phenomenal. They were doing closed loop communication. They were prioritizing. You should have seen what we've gotten done. And to see that that's translating into what we're doing in the hospital, it's just really great to see. And then the friendships and the camaraderie just within the day-to-day -day unit is, is so much better in the months after boot camp. <coughs> Thank you.